Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn now to uh, to our walk through the book of Romans, and today we're in chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. And we'll read verses 12 through 17, and if uh, you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In high school, I ran uh, track and cross country. That was my athletic thing. And um, I had one coach for both uh, throughout all four years of high school. It was David Forbes, who's also a history teacher. And he was a great coach. And one of the reasons he was a great coach is because he was always for his runners. You knew that he was for you. He, would, um, he was always straightforward. Um, and he would tell you if you d- he didn't think that you brought your best to the track or to the course that day. But you knew that he loved you more than simply for your performance. And there were a number of assistant coaches over the years that would pass through as well. And uh, one's name was John. And he would coach some running and would coach some field. And uh, John was not well loved by the team. And the reason for that is John was very interested in your performance. If you were contributing to the overall score of the track team or the cross-country team, then he would be interested in you. But if you weren't contributing to that overall score, he wasn't very interested in you. He would pull back from you. Now, when you compare and contrast those two coaches, David Forbes and John, who do you think I ran faster for? Questionably, I ran a lot faster for David Forbes. Why? Because I knew that my success did not hinge, my, the, his love and affection, his commitment to me didn't hinge on my performance as where it did in my relationship with John. So I knew that John didn't really love me as a person, but that Coach Forbes did. That difference in terms of relationship and how we relate to someone makes all the difference in our struggle with sin. How... How hard are you struggling against your sin? Well, if you believe God is judging you simply on your performance, then it becomes very difficult to remain committed to struggle against your sin because you believe deep down that He doesn't love you as a person. But if you believe that God's love is very deep for you and it's not based on your performance, then you struggle fiercely against your sin because you know that His love swallows up your failure. And that by working against your sin, you may simply draw near to him. 
This is what Paul is after in the section of Romans 12. Understanding the love of God and how understanding the love of God motivates us to really work to fight against sin, not to be lazy against sin. The way I want to consider what Paul lays out for us this morning is by first considering death by flesh, secondly, life by spirit, and thirdly, glory by suffering. Number one, death by flesh. Number two, life by spirit. And number three, glory by suffering. So what do I mean by death by flesh? Paul begins by calling you a debtor. That's interesting. It's actually a little bit surprising if you've been reading along in Romans as we've been proceeding. And you come to this section of of chapter 8, verse 12. uh, Paul's been spending a lot of time talking about how you're freed in Christ how you've been liberated, how you're no longer a slave to sin. And then you get to verse 12, and he affirms that you are a debtor. You think, oh, well, that's a little bit different. But his point here in in pointing up that you are, in fact, a debtor is first and foremost to say what you're not a debtor to, which is the flesh. Now, what does this mean, that we're not debtors to the flesh? When we're reading Paul, we have to remember that flesh doesn't doesn't just refer to skin and bones, right? He's not simply talking about human physicality. The flesh is everything that's bound up in sin and corruption and the brokenness of the world. It is a very expansive term. For Paul, it can even include the law when the law law is manipulated by sin to produce death. The flesh is all of that. And the flesh continues to bear down on us in ways that Paul is suggesting it shouldn't. You know, why does Paul have to say that you're not a debtor to the flesh? Why does he have to make this point to the church in Rome? Why is it an important point in the scriptures for us? It must be that we really struggle to continue to be, we are always thinking of ourselves as debtors to the flesh. Right? A debtor is someone who, who owes something to someone. And we believe that we owe something to this entity called the flesh. That broken part of us, that part of us that desires to be freed from God, separated from Him. It's the flesh that consumes us, that is dangerous, that uh, wants to devour. We've likened it to a virus. We've likened it um, to a cancer. That's the way the flesh works. And Paul says, oh, it's so dangerous to continue to think of yourself as a debtor to the flesh. This is why the Puritans spoke in language of a a phrase that really is very valuable, a phrase that we should really be using often, which is the mortification of the flesh, which means the putting to death of the flesh. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, you've been redeemed and set free in Jesus Christ, but there's part of you that still feels like a debtor to the old, old part of you, to the flesh, to that which is sinful and broken. And you want to pay your debt. You feel like you have to pay it in order to be in good standing, to feel whole. And the Puritan said, you know what? That thing is so nasty, you have to work your entire life to put it to death. The Puritans actually went out of their way to come up with incredibly um, colorful analogies by which to encourage their people, you have to drive a nail into the flesh every day. It's a language that they would speak of. If the Puritans were writing today, there's no question that they would appropriate the zombie genre. 
right? You can't mess around with zombies. You, they're not easy to kill, right? Shotgun blow to the chest isn't going to do the trick. If you want to take down a zombie, how do you do it? Has to be a headshot, right? Or head off the body. And that, if John Owen was writing today, he's saying, listen, your flesh is just like you're in a room with 15 zombies and they stand between you and the exit. What are you going to do? John Owen would say, that's what you need to do to your flesh. That's how you need to treat it. That's how you need to respond to it. And Paul, make no mistake, is laying out here for you that you are responsible. Right? He's not saying that this is something that is magically done for you. He says, if you fail to put to death the flesh, if you continue to live according to the flesh, then you will die. If you aren't fighting against the flesh in an intentional way, then I would love to hear what you want to do with this passage. Because Paul's saying that you're going to die. And by death, he doesn't mean simply physical death. He means death is separated from God because you have not taken responsibility for what God in Christ has done on your behalf in setting you free. Are you appropriating that freedom that he has delivered to you to actually move forward in walking by the Spirit? Well, none of us are doing it in the way that we might like to be doing. And we have to realize that it's really weird that if we're set free from the flesh, that we still feel like a debtor to the flesh. Isn't that strange language? That you're set free from something really bad, but you have a weird relationship where you want to run back to that really bad thing. That reminds us that we're very broken people. Reminds us that we live in a very broken world. And there are several analogies that we can draw about weird, from weird things that happen in broken situations. Let me draw several. The first is uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is an odd psychological disorder that occurs when someone has been kidnapped and abused by kidnappers. But what happens to the victim is they mistake a lack of abuse for kindness. And so they actually identify with and draw near to their captor sometimes falling in love with their captor and uh, defending their captor even after they've been released. There are a number of very famous cases in which the person who had been through the ordeal actually proceeded to defend the person who had kidnapped them and abused them after the fact. Stockholm Syndrome. All of us are suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. We have been captured by sin and death. We have been abused by sin and death. But we look back and we mistake a lack of extreme abuse for kindness. And part of us falls in love with that flesh. Part of us falls in love with our captor. And so we want to return to it. We want to honor it. We want to pay a debt to it. It's incredibly dysfunctional, but we're all struggling with Stockholm Syndrome. Secondly, another analogy we might draw is uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder. Right? PTSD. Now, do not get me wrong this morning. I'm not for a moment trying to make light of a very real condition. And you may know someone who struggles with it. Nor am I trying to make light of the particular situations, often for our, 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 um, the people who serve in our military, that they're exposed to. But think for a moment about what PTSD is. PTSD is the result of being exposed to an extremely traumatic situation. And as a result of being exposed to that traumatic situation, something breaks psychologically so that you are so overridden with anxiety that you can't function in a normal way in life and society. There is nothing more traumatic than being kicked out of the garden. 
And I mean that with all sincerity. When you think about the story of the Bible, that humanity was created to be in right relationship with God, to love Him, to worship Him, to be blessed by Him, and to cultivate the earth to His glory. And all of that is rent asunder so that sin and death enter the world and devour things. That is highly traumatic. It's so traumatic that when you start to actually think about it, and some of you do, you have an abnormal level of anxiety in your life. And it debilitates some of you in certain ways. And so in that debilitation, what do you do? You have a tendency to say, what must I pay the flesh to make this be more peaceful? What must I pay to the flesh to make this go away so that I may have less anxiety? And another analogy we might draw is with autism. Now, autism is different than the other two. You recognize that the other two are the result of very traumatic events that might happen in one's life. Autism is the result of uh, things not working appropriately biologically uh, or neurologically, to be more specific. That for some reason, in someone who suffers autism, uh, they have an inability, something is broken in the way that they receive and process information. As a result of the fall, we are incredibly broken in the ways that we receive and process information. You are receiving information constantly from around you, from this world, and you are constantly interpreting it in the wrong way. Interpreting it in grids that are not informed by Scripture, are not informed by God, but are informed by the world or by your own selfish desires, and as a result, you interpret them wrongly. And so you you misperceive the information And then your behavior as a result of misperceiving that information is also uh, wrongly uh, directed, wrongly oriented, and it's incredibly reflective of autism. In fact, um, it's particularly reflective of a story of um, Owen Suskind, who is a boy who uh, was born into a family. Um, He has an older brother, Walter, and uh, he was a very normal child, up uh, through about halfway through his second year. And a very uh, typical toddler. And in a very short period of time, his parents would say, uh, in, in essence, the lights went out. He uh, stopped talking. He stopped um, making eye contact. He uh, couldn't handle uh, significant changes and stimulus in his life. And eventually he was diagnosed with what is called regressive autism, which uh, for someone who uh, suffers regressive autism, it's a fairly severe kind of autism. And for the first 18 to 36 months, a child is completely normal. And then in a very short time period, there's a, there's a strong onset that radically changes um, the child. Uh, Owen's parents said that uh, our child was gone. And they found themselves over time putting away videos and pictures of Owen as a toddler because they were too painful. Because that that child that they knew had for some reason disappeared um, into the body that Owen still occupied. But it was quite different. Just imagine being a parent, enjoying a child, seeing them grow and flourish. And then suddenly the body is still there, but but your child disappears. Imagine the pain and the challenge of dealing with that. And I think, but in that, there is a degree to which we have to be challenged to understand the pain of the Father. You know, 
all you have to do to, I mean, one picture of autism, if you compare Genesis 1 and 2, creation and what creation is intended for, to, for, to Genesis 3 through 11, which is the desperation that occurs as the result of entrance of sin into the world. Right? You imagine being the loving father who looks on the child who starts off just the way he's supposed to, to the child that becomes utterly bankrupt and empty of who the child was intended to be. And so when we look at the pain of Ron Suskind, Owen's father, we can only get a taste of what the pain must be for the Heavenly Father as he sees his own children disappear into a world of sin and death. All these reasons point up to us that, indeed, Paul can tell us that we're not debtors to the flesh. But that is an ongoing struggle in which we must be participating. We must recognize that, yes, we're not debtors to the flesh, but because of the brokenness of sin and all of these things, Stockholm Syndrome and um, uh, PTSD and autism, that in some ways help us to dimly reflect upon our condition in sin, we realize that, oh, we have a great tendency to think of ourselves as debtors to the flesh, to return to that which was not good for us, rather than to embracing God and to and embracing the Spirit. How do you then overcome the flesh? How do you put to death the deeds of the body, which continue to draw us in? For Paul, the answer lies in the Spirit. And so we must consider life by the Spirit. Notice, Paul says, the spirit of flesh is characterized by slavery and fear. But the spirit of adoption is characterized by intimacy with the Father. Why is the spirit of flesh characterized by slavery and fear? It's characterized by slavery because you can never actually earn your freedom. As long as you live by the flesh, you will die by the flesh. It's characterized by fear because whatever you love in the flesh is not something that will love you back substantially. And so you know that deep down and there's a fear that, oh, eventually this thing is going to leave me, I will be alone, and I will be without salvation. It's the slavery and the fear that characterizes the spirit of the flesh. But why is the spirit characterized? What is it characterized by? It's characterized by intimacy with the Father. That the spirit is adoption. That you are now sons of God and brothers with Christ, and that you are invited to approach the creator of the universe with the language of intimacy, Abba, Father. It's the way Jesus himself prayed in his darkest hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is a term that can only be the result of God's incredible love for us, that he has gone to such great extent to make us his sons and daughters again. In... uh, Owen's story, which is actually being published as a book and being made into a documentary. It's a remarkable story, both for the love of his father and for the way in which uh, his father and mother pursued communicating with Owen. Years go by in which Owen doesn't make eye contact or speak, but in gibberish. And uh, countless nights go by where his mother will rock him to sleep as he wails and thrashes for unknown reasons. Years of despair. 
And interestingly, the only time that the family feels like there's peace, that Owen settles down, that there's a moment for them to come together, is when there's a Disney movie on in the TV room. And so this happens to become the gathering point of the family, and they will enjoy the, um, the catalog of Disney movies together. And it was uh, a couple years later that they were watching The Little Mermaid, and Owen just started saying, Juicer voice, over and over again, Juicer voice. And he was also take the remote during The Little Mermaid, and he kept rewinding, in this scene of the sea witch Ursula doing her big singing production as she's about to steal Ariel's voice to make her human. And he keeps replaying the same section over and over again. And you can only imagine how frustrating this would be. You know, you're trying to extend patience to this child who has an extreme disability, but over and over and over again he will watch the same section of the movie. But as they're doing this, they realize that he's not saying juicer voice, he's saying just her voice, which is what Ursula wants from Ariel, just her voice. And it's the first time in years that he's communicated anything at all. And so they, they proceed to affirm that this is what he's saying. And uh, it seems to be affirmed in trying to communicate with him. And so they're overjoyed and they go to the doctors and the doctors say, well, don't get too excited. Uh, it's very common in autistic children that they parrot back the last thing they heard, uh, much like a parrot does. It doesn't mean that they're communicating. Uh, there's a, a name of it which involves the idea of echoing. It's something in their brain, it's rattling around, and it, that's all he's doing. You shouldn't get your hopes up. Well, they're somewhat diminished, and they proceed, and actually some time goes by again. But uh, ongoingly, for years, the gathering point of the family and for um, Owen and his, his, his healthy brother, older brother Walt, are Disney movies. And it comes to Walt's, uh, the older brother's, ninth birthday. And uh, he's crying. He doesn't want to turn nine. He doesn't like growing older. And out of the blue, Owen walks into the house, and he looks both his mom and his dad in the eye, and he says, uh, Owen, or Walt just doesn't want to grow up. He's just like Mowgli and Peter Pan. And he walks off. And it's been, it's been uh, I think, at least four years since he's communicated at all or made eye contact with them. He walks in, drops his sentence, and walks out. And so they don't know what to do. They describe themselves as just standing in the kitchen doing dishes, and they, don't, they can't move. They don't, they don't know how what their little window has been opened up, and they think, my goodness, how are we going to proceed? And so um, the, Ron, the dad, describes his wife looking at him saying, please, See if you can work with this. See if you can open him up. Is there an opportunity here? And so this, this is how his dad describes um, what he did. So goes, soon I'm uh, tiptoeing up the carpeted stairs. Owen's sitting on his bed, flipping through a Disney book. He can't read, of course, but he likes to look at the pictures. The mission is to reach around the banister into his closet and grab his puppet, or of Iago, the parrot from Aladdin, and one of his favorite characters. He's been doing lots of Iago Echo Ilia, which is the name for the repeating, the parroting back. Uh, easy to identify because the character is voiced by Gilbert Gottfried, who talks like a busted Cuisinart. Once Iago's in hand, I gently pull the bedspread from the foot of Owen's bed onto the floor. He doesn't look up. It takes four minutes for Iago and me to make it safely under the bedspread. Now crawl, snail slow, along the side of the bed to its midpoint. Fine, I freeze here for a minute, trying to figure out my opening line. 
Four or five sentences dance about auditioning. Then a thought, be Iago. What would Iago say? I pushed the puppet up from the covers. So, Owen, how you doing? This is in Iago's Gilbert Gottfried's voice, which I will not try to mimic. I say, uh, doing my best, Gilbert Gottfried. I mean, how does it feel to be you? I can see him turn toward Iago, and he's, he's quoting lines from the movie. Uh, how does it feel to be you? I can see him turn toward Iago. It's as if he is bumping into an old friend. I'm not happy. I don't have friends. I can't understand what people say. I've not heard this voice, natural and easy, with the traditional rhythm of common speech since he was two. I'm talking to my son for the first time in five years. Oriago is. Stay in character. So, Owen, when did you and I become such good friends? And so become, begins an opportunity for Ron, the dad, to communicate for the first time in five years with his son, who is severely autistic. And autism is very, you know, we understand very little of autism, but what develops over time is this ability to dialogue with, uh, with Owen through the Disney films. It's, who knows why it's working this way, but through the language of Disney, they start to communicate. But here's a picture of a dad who desperately loves his missing son to the extent that he crawls under a blanket, pretends to be Iago, and enters into a world of communicating in Disney lines so that he can have a relationship with his son. And how, what a reminder of the beauty of God's love for us, that he crawls under a blanket, that he becomes human, so that he can communicate with us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can appreciate, in a way that our relationship might be restored, and that we might begin to thrive again. This is Ron's whole goal, that his son might actually be able to thrive. That's a picture of what Paul is after in describing what God has done for us in Christ, and then learning to live by the Spirit learning to live by the willingness to say, Abba, Father, recognizing that God's love for you is so abundant that he wants to make you whole, and trusting in that and relying on the Spirit. That's a beautiful picture, right? But still, the question might challenge us, how is that actually employed? How are we actually led by the Spirit to put to deeds the death, to put to death the deeds of the body? How's that employed? One way is certainly that you and I have to slow down and we have to listen. Racing around here and there, we live the busiest lives perhaps of any people or at least we feel like we live the busiest lives of any people and for this point, it doesn't matter whether it's real or felt. But there has to be a time where we go to God and speak with Him and hear Him speak to us. Because if we're not willing to do that, then we're not really serious at all about a relationship with him. We're not really believing in the one who would crawl under the blanket to communicate with us in a way that we can understand. We're really just living by the flesh and slapping the name Jesus on it. Because we want what we want in the flesh, and we want eternal life, and we mix the two together. But make no mistake, living that way, living a life without prayer, living a life without actually seeking to hear from God, is nothing more than being a debtor to the flesh. And so you need to take time to listen, to be quiet, to approach God, and you need to come tonight of prayer, which is tonight. We're going to gather, and we're going to pray, and we're going to try to listen. 
We're going to introduce some silence tonight, and we're going to play down the liturgy. And we're going to try to be a people that together work at appreciating the love of the Father so that we, in a very real and deep way, begin to say, Abba, Father. This is life by the Spirit. It's God's provision for us, but we have to notice that God's provision uh, has, or God's promise has a provision. Right? Being united with Christ is great. We're heirs with Him. We're brothers with Him. We're going to be glorified with Him. If what? If we suffer with Him. Well, the promises have a provision that, oh, if you want all of these good things that are bound up in Jesus Christ, that's great. That's the right direction to go. But realize what that road is characterized by to experience it. It's characterized by suffering. Up to this point in Romans, Paul's been stressing everything that is the result of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But now he's telling us that we have a responsibility to walk by the Spirit, and that walking by the Spirit inevitably will involve suffering on that road. All of a sudden, it sounds a little bit less attractive, doesn't it? Welcome to being heirs with Jesus and brothers with him. Welcome to the road to glory. It's time to engage in suffering. Why must suffering be part of the road to glory? Why can't we just have the glory part? That sounds like a much better plan to me and to some of you, I would imagine. Well, I think there are at least two reasons that we must consider briefly. And we can do this briefly because suffering will be continued into the remainder of chapter 8 that we will pick up next week. But one thing that suffering does, and this is a point that John Calvin makes very well, is that it cures you of the vanities of this world, of the things that you fall in love with in this world. You have to understand that the world is not a neutral place. We sometimes tend to think of the world as a neutral place, right? Like, well, I'm just existing, and as long as I'm going to church on Sunday, I'm not neutral, I'm a little over towards Jesus, so I'm in good shape. But that's not the way that the Bible presents the world at all. The Bible is actually an incredibly dysfunctional place. It's like standing, ah, the world, thank you. The world is a very dysfunctional Nobody else caught that? I threw out that the Bible is a dysfunctional place. Some of you aren't listening very closely. Now I'm keeping an eye on you all. I start to call people out. Uh, the world is an incredibly dysfunctional place. It's like standing in a strong running, a strong current, a strong stream, right? You can't, you're not going to be able to stand still. So Calvin would say either you... You place your eyes on the shore. You place your eyes on Christ and his kingdom and what lies beyond. And you move in that direction or you don't do anything. You're not intentional. You're apathetic. You're lazy. And as a result, you're just going to be carried along by the flow of the stream. There are no two options because the world isn't a neutral place. You can't be unintentional. Either you're intentional about the things of Christ and willing to engage suffering or You run away from that suffering, you're unintentional, and you increasingly get caught up in the principalities of the powers of this world and the darkness, 
and and the power of the prince of the air. There is still much evil in this world. And it's in that evil, actually, that doesn't present itself to us as evil. Calvin says those things are very attractive to us. We love those things. That fleshly part of us is drawn to the darkness of the world that is not redeemed. It, it, it woos us. It calls to us. It, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the woman standing outside that place of iniquity calling us in. Right? This is what the world is. And uh, Calvin says, suffering is the way in which God makes sure that you do not go down that stream. If there was no suffering then you would never be awakened to how evil and wicked the place, the world is. And you would tend to think that things are neutral and you would just float down the stream and you would end up in a place of much greater suffering than the suffering that God permits to come on your life. So Calvin writes this, to counteract this, the Lord by various, right, the vanities of the world, to counteract you being attracted to these things, the Lord, by various and severe lessons of misery, teaches his children the vanity of the present life, that they may not promise themselves to a life of ease and comfort. He permits them, therefore, to be frequently disturbed and molested by wars or revolutions, by robberies and by other injuries. That's remarkable. Why does God permit wars? Why does God permit you to be afflicted by revolutions and diseases and famines and robberies and injuries? It's because He loves you. And He would not have you float down the river of the vanities of this world, but would, have, would wake you up and have you be reminded that you must push towards shore and remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So number one, Suffering is essential to free you from the vanities of this world. But number two, suffering is also part of maturing us. Suffering is a weird thing. It's a weird thing that it's important because it's done away with in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? We talk about good things that will last, like love and faith and hope. Those things will continue. But suffering is something that has an end date. And yet we are still saying that it's good and essential even though it's going to be undone. Which means that it must be intimate, the good of suffering must be intimately tied to undoing the badness of sin and death and of the flesh. We need suffering in order to grow up beyond wrestling with that old part of the flesh. As Owen was growing up, this became a significant challenge to be willing um, to watch him go through suffering to mature. Right? The goal of their parents has to be, as always, we really want Owen eventually to be an independent individual. And that meant that they must walk through hard times of watching him suffer. He would be uh, kicked out of the special school that he got into, he couldn't keep up with because his disabilities were more severe. And so he was expelled, not making the grade, and he had to say goodbye to all of his friends. His parents lamented this, but what happened is he went to a school for even more severely disabled children, and so he went from being at this school where he was at the bottom to being a school for more disabled children where he was at the top. And he decided, started to define his entire life through all of the Disney sidekicks. And he started to go through sketch pads and... Um, 
Owen, uh, who's memorized the complete Disney catalog of all movies, he can quote anything, and his voices are quite remarkable, also has the gift of um, being an incredible animator. He can draw anything. And he doesn't, it's not like a sketcher. He puts the pencil down and he draws without picking it up the whole thing, kind of like a drafting arm. So it's a remarkable thing to watch him because his entire body is in uncontrolled motion except for his arm and his hand. And as he was transitioning schools, and it was a very difficult period for him, he began to define his whole life by the world of Disney sidekicks. And he started to assign sidekicks names and identities to the different children that he was with, and he started to pour into them. He would always be kind of the leader sidekick that was the narrator's voice that led and invested in the other characters. And so he would do this in the school, and he began to grow. And eventually was able to go to a college for disabled youth um, in Cape Cod. And there, that was a scary moment for his mom and dad to send him away and to allow him to try a life that was semi-independent, even though he was severely disabled. And he ended up starting a a Disney club uh, for students there who would gather. And they've realized that for some reason, the Disney movies... Uh, communicate to a certain brand of autism in a fairly phenomenal way. Uh, This is one of the reasons his life is being turned into a book and a documentary. It's actually becoming a mode of therapy and a means of communication uh, that's being explored with autistic kids. And so he's at the school and maturing and continuing to vest in others, and he's becoming a person that he never would have been if he had not gone through these challenges of suffering, these challenges which made him look more deeply both into himself and to the world of which he was a part. And there's a, um, a video of he and his dad sitting together and they're reflecting on his life and how far he's come. And you can see his dad, they're actually in the house that he's about to graduate from college and move into this house and live independently with a number of other disabled uh, kids who are graduating from the college. And you can sense the nervousness in his dad's voice. And they're looking at the this house being built, and the walls are just studs. But um, Owen is describing where the TV is going to go. He's describing where the collection of Disney movies are going to go. And uh, so his dad goes, so are you just going to stay here and watch Disney movies all day? And you think, my goodness, the very thing that has set Owen free could entrap him. He stands now on the brink where he could disappear into a world of Disney, or he could continue to use it to interact with the world and grow in maturity. And there's a similar danger, which is a fear for Paul, that we could disappear into the very thing that saves us, at least pretend to. That knowing that our sins are atoned for in Jesus Christ, we might simply then, everything is taken care of and no longer take responsibility and disappear into that illusion of comfort so that we would no longer actively be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And if we take that road, Paul says, you're going to die. Instead, Owen says, no, I'm not going to. It's something that's just for the evenings. I'm going to go out into the world during the day. Stag goes, yeah. And as they're closing this little talk together, um, rehearsing what has gone on through their life, they end up uh, at the Lion King. You know, watching conversation with them is a bit odd because it, it just bounces around in Disney movies, which they know intimately. 
But they end up at, at the Lion King and, and they end up fittingly at the place where Simba has to decide whether to take responsibility for himself. He's gone off and has been irresponsible and now is, is being faced with the reality that he needs to go back and challenge Scar to win his rightful place as king of the pride. And in wrestling through that, and with the guidance of Rafiki the monkey, he has a vision of Mufasa uh, up in the sky who has passed. And in that dialogue, um, Mufasa is saying, remember who you are. You've forgotten who you are, and that's a big problem. You don't think that you can go back and face Scar because you've forgotten who you are. And Simba's afraid and doesn't want to move forward. And Mufasa finally says, who are you? And he says, I'm your son. And this is, Ron says to Owen, who are you? And Owen says, I'm your son. And that's what Paul calls us to this morning. God says, who are you? And we say, we're your son. You're Abba, Daddy. And to him we pray. Father, thank you for your great grace to us. Thank you for loving us deeply and for, uh, despite our desperate brokenness, uh, making it so that we can call you Abba, Father, again. We pray that we would not take this for granted or be lulled into complacency, but instead would uh, truly pursue you out of the love that you have shown us. May it not be true of us that we die because we have not taken seriously the flesh, Help us to believe deeply that out of your love for us, we owe it nothing. We owe you everything. And there's complete freedom and safety in that because of your abundant love for us. So help us to find ourselves there this morning. We pray that you would uh, lift our voices uh, beyond what we are even able to do. And may we listen to the voice of your spirit and being led by your spirit offer something that is truly pleasing in your ear. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name, amen.